You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. The Hour! This, this, this is this, The this, Hour. You're listening to The Hour. This is The Hour. With Resident Advisor. Hello and welcome to the third edition of The Hour. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. The Hour is RA's new podcast, a blend of documentaries, discussion, interviews and lots of other things besides. On today's show, some of RA's editorial staff discuss their favourite releases of 2016 so far. Matt McDermott finds out why the cassette format is still alive and well in Los Angeles. And Aaron Coultate presents a moving tribute to DJ Al Capone, a much-loved character at the Honest John's record shop in West London who is a pillar of his local community. But first, each month we ask five people from across the dance music industry the same topical question. For this month's edition of One Question, we asked, what's your song of the summer? Here's Lisa Blanning, a regular RA contributor, to kick us off. Daddy. Okay, so my summer jam is Anoni's Watch Me. And the reason I chose this track is because I saw Anoni's performance at Sonar. It was a stunning performance, especially in that setting, which is Barcelona in June. The whole record's very political, and this particular track is actually about the NSA and constant digital surveillance. But um, it's, it's a really great pop song as well, although there is definitely like a lot of underlying sadness to it. But the production, which is done by both Hudson Mohawk and One of Tricks Point Never in collaboration, is, is, is very good. The song itself is really accessible and you find yourself singing along to it, but you're singing along to, to some, some really horrifying thoughts and scary imagery. And uh, this is completely appropriate, I think, for 2016, especially what's been going on recently in the world. It's a, a nice reminder that music can actually be woke, so to speak, as well as good music. Protecting me from child molesters, protecting me from evil. Andy LeMay, Head of Marketing at Dimensions and Outlook Festival. My release um, of the year so far is the High Life EP from uh, Kyle Say and Byron the Aquarius. Um, it's a release that's pretty close to our hearts at the festival. Byron's a producer that we've been chatting to and friends with for a couple of years now, um, well before this release came out. And I think for us, we'd booked him for the festival before this dropped down the World Hopes release. And it's just been amazing really for us to see the explosion and, and the development of his sound and to see how much love he's getting worldwide um, off the back of this release. He's actually on tour in Australia right now. And we've managed to support him, um, not only booking him at the festival, but he's played with quite a lot of our partners. So it's something that sort of goes back to what I feel like the festival's role is in, in developing and nurturing new talent. And that's been one of the really brilliant things about this release um, and him as an artist being able to support that. Jasper James, resident DJ at Phonox in London. My track of the summer is by Diddy Sinclair and it's entitled Lovely Flight. It's an old French house record, well it's not that old, I think it came out around 2001 um, on Serial Records and this was one of the first kind of tracks that properly really got me into house music. Uh, I remember my dad playing it, I think it was at Tea in the Park and uh, I must have been about 14 or 15 and I heard that record out of a big sound system and it really struck a chord with me and I remember going home and downloading that track onto my iPod mini 
I used to listen to that record on repeat, walking to school, in class, every day. Uh, I just loved that tune. And to be honest, I kind of forgot about it for a while. I was like, I need to make a conscious decision to really start playing this out again. So yeah, I've just been kind of rinsing it all summer and it always gets a great reaction. It's just got that kind of groovy bass line, quite hypnotic pad, synthy, like dubby effect that goes across the top that just kind of takes you on a nice journey. And then when the vocal comes in, it's got that kind of euphoric hands in the air moment and it's been going down a treat. So yeah, rest in peace, Didier Sinclair. Is John Davis, director of EU music partnerships at Shazam. So my song of the summer is Kung's versus Cooking on Three Burners, This Girl. Here at Shazam, we're essentially, I guess, the main way a lot of people discover music in the first point. Good to highlight that we're a truly global service as well. We have over 125 million monthly active users globally. So that's people who have the app on their phone and continue to use it each month. So typically we can sort of spot a hit before anybody else. The reason why Kung's is particularly on our radar at the moment is it's the most Shazam song in the world right now. Uh, and it has been for around seven weeks. In terms of dance music as well, you know, it, it's the most Shazam song in Ibiza. Um, so we're seeing, you know, our users everywhere, not just Shazamming it, you know, off the radio, but also in clubs as well. We haven't seen it break in the US yet. Um, and we've seen this quite a lot with dance tracks previously in, in the last few years that they will break in certain areas in Europe first and then go on to, you know, absolutely smash it in the US. And Graham Stewart. Booker at the Zoo Project in Ibiza. My song of the summer is Final Credits by Midland. Uh, it's a very summery track, basically. I, f I first heard it in his Essential Mix back in February, um, and it was released shortly after that on his regraded label. I think it was late May or early June, maybe, something around that time. It's kind of really classy and it's, it's put together from old samples from a, a Lee Alfred record. Really great percussion and a kind of like mazy synth line that runs all the way through it and this really hypnotic pitched up vocal. I think what Midland's done with this disco edit kind of really fits my idea of what a, a summary record should feel like and definitely the, the impact it should have on the dance floor. You know, I've heard it played in, in kind of dark nightclubs or sunny outdoor venues and it, it, it always works. People just go crazy for it. It's still something that when you hear it coming through in the mix that you're kind of really, really excited about and you're not over the top annoyed by it or anything yet. It's, it reminds me the first time you hear like a really great Todd Terge record or an MCD cut or something like that. It's, it's happy and it's fun and it's what a summer record should be for me. resident advisor. Aaron, you've spent some time over at Honest John's in West London these past few weeks, uh, hearing about a man who sounds like something of a local hero. That's right. The man in question is Tony Morris, who sadly died somewhat suddenly and unexpectedly in May. I first heard about Tony when I was researching a piece about Honest John's last year. He's what you could call a, a shop legend at Honest John's. John Clare, the original owner of the shop, actually remembers Tony coming in on day one when Tony would have been about 13 years old. And that was when? 
uh, that would have been in 1974 at the original uh, Honest John's shop, which was on Goldman Road. But yeah, Tony wasn't just an Honest John's legend. He was a really key part of the Labrook Grove community. But his musical impact on the shop was absolutely huge. Um, he DJed under the name Al Capone, and he was an expert in soul music and reggae, and he really genuinely influenced the taste of several generations of staff at Honest John's. But the thing that really shone through with the people I spoke to about Tony was his personality. Uh, he was just sounded like such a warm, gregarious, gentle soul. There was actually a really lovely comment uh, left on the, on the piece that I wrote that I think summarises Tony better than I ever could. Have you got it there? Yeah, I, I can read it out. He has the best and most complete soul collection that epitomises the West London sound. His reggae collection is vast and serious. He is DJ Al Capone, the Inting, a wicked selector and Labrook Grove legend, the ultimate Honest John's customer and a walking piece of history. Hi, I'm Alan Schofield. I'm uh, one of the owners of, of the shop Honest John's, uh, where we are now in the basement thereof. And Honest John's is um, a long-standing record shop in Portobello Road, uh, just just above the Westway. Tony was a shop legend here at Honest John's, but he was also a very popular member of the, the local community around Labrake Grove. Mm. Um, can you tell me about that? Yeah, I mean, one way of saying that, you know, the effect he had and the impression he made and the presence uh, can be summed up just by if you were at his funeral last week. There were about a thousand people there, possibly more. most memorable thing for me was coming out of the church and realizing there was at least as many people outside who couldn't get into what was a large church, I'll say it's Notting Hill. So many people uh, on a Wednesday morning coming out um, to see him off. I've been working here since 1988 and probably every day that I was here, Tony was either around or had just been around. In terms of the Honest John's, he was part of the shop from the very beginning. At the age of 13 or 14, when the shop opened in 74, he was he was there on the first day. Um, somehow, I guess he found it kind of a home away from home, perhaps. Um, but it wasn't just Honest John's where Tony was a sort of fixture, if that isn't the right, wrong word. Portobello Road, Goldborn Road, up to Trellick Tower, down to Notting Hill, was Tony's sort of stomping ground, and he was like, he was, he was the person you saw, the person you spoke to, the person who knew everybody, the person who had a word for everybody, and um, this sort of person that gave us sort of energy, delight, um, all sorts of things. Rock on, baby. And can you tell me about the time um, you first remember meeting Tony? Well, that, um, it's quite funny because I realised the other day that the first day I met Tony would have been the first day I worked here. John had offered me a, a couple of days work a week in the basement because he needed some new staff. I was a friend of Mark's and we met. He said, yeah, come do Friday, Saturdays. There's a Next week there's an opening, come to the opening. And I sort of arrived as I came to the door I sort of stopped by this guy at the door who was quite sort of aggressive and uh, slightly sort of like, you know, mate, what's up? You know, you can't get in there. It's a private dude. I said, oh, I'm being invited. Oh, really? And it sort of really put me through my paces in a kind of fairly, so, uh, I was kind of slightly taken back. Well, this was Tony, which was quite funny, who John had hired to be the bouncer for the night. I mean, this is a big joke. If, if, you, when you, if you know Tony, the, the very idea that this man could ever have been a bouncer is, is a scream, but anyway, you have to figure that one out. Uh, but he, he was quite good, because he was quite aggressive and quite sort of, um, you know, he did, wasn't gonna let everybody in, and he, you had to be part of it, and you had to know something, and it was clear that this guy was part of the shop, and I wasn't, and that's my mem my main memory, was that this was, I had to sort of deal with this guy to get in. Um, and, and I guess what I'm saying is that that was a sort of role, not, not that he put people off coming into the shop ever, he was the most welcoming person, um, but that he was a kind of protector of this shop. He sort of looked after it's what he saw was its best interest, which was to keep it the way it was, to keep it a place for, you know, for good music and for people that were into it. To extend that sort of metaphor, if you like, there's several times in the last 25 years, people have come into the shop and asking for the owner. And I've said, how can I help you? I'm co-owner. And um, the response has been, no, no. I mean, the guy, uh, the black guy with the coat, you know, um, What's his name? Tony. Where is he? I need to speak to him. Uh, and 
it was always quite funny, but absolutely appropriate. I mean, Tony was the, he owned, if anybody owned this place, Tony did. I'm Zakia and I work in Honest John's um, twice a week, Wednesday and Thursday, and have done for about a year and a half now. Tell me about um, when you first uh, met Tony and what were your first impressions of him? Um, so I live in Labrick Grove, so I've kind of seen him around and about, uh, <laughs> dressed in a long coat, uh, wondering kind of who is this. He's a kind of local character that everybody in the area knows. And then obviously coming into the shop, um, he'd always be making some kind of ruckus uh, when I was coming here as a customer. Um, and yeah, kind of when I first started working here, um, he was definitely trying to sort of work me out. We were definitely sizing each other up, not really sure <laughs> about each other's presence. Or, um, but yeah, over the year and a half, we ended up getting quite uh, quite close, which was nice. Yeah, and tell me about that friendship. How did that how did that develop? Well, I think um, as he became sort of more comfortable with me, he would feel free to cuss me. <laughs> And uh, take the piss out of uh, listening to jazz and whatever other music that he didn't quite uh, um, approve of. Um, and then, so we had quite a banterous relationship and um, he'd come in every Wednesday and Thursday and just hang out in the shop. I think I perhaps was more tolerant of him and uh, his loitering than other people <laughs> who work here. If you weren't playing a record famously, he would come in and he would, you know, put a record on, man. You know, what is this? A library. We're not at church now. Come on, put a record on. And if it was a good record, he'd let you know. And if it was a bad record, he'd tell you to take it off. And if it was a good record that he really liked, he'd come behind the deck and he'd start it again and turn it up. And he would sing along and he would generally tell people about it. And um, yeah, he was just a live, live wire. He was one of a kind. It was kind of strange when he passed away. It wasn't really until that, that I realised, you know, I've actually been hanging out with this guy like, you know, twice a week for a year and a half and actually we had this kind of strange closeness and uh, camaraderie that um, is sad to be over, yeah. And in terms of the, the musical discussions you had, were, was there certain things that you um, turned each other on to in terms of, in terms of music? Um, well, I think it was rather one way. <laughs> I can't say that I particularly showed him anything, but um, definitely over yeah over the course of the, the year and a half, he I think at first I wasn't really keen on the whole soft soft track. I'm sure you've heard of uh, Tony's infamous soft tracks. Describe a typical Tony soft track for me. Um, okay, a quintessential soft track would be just a kind of mid tempo, verging on extremely or not even verging, just extremely cheesy a lot of the time. Um, kind of classic um, soul track um, that I ne wouldn't necessarily listen to of my own accord. There's one particular um, one, I think it was actually the last song that he asked me to play in the shop, which was called, I think it was called uh, Your Love by Jay McGee. And um, yeah, check that one out, because that's a, that's a classic Tony uh, Tony number. And you said, of course, you're, you're, you're going to miss Tony. What is it about um, him and his personality that you think you personally and, and the shop will miss? Well, he's a, he's a one-of-a-kind type of character. I think he kind of... Um, he kind of exemplifies or he, he symbolises a kind of Labrick Gove generation that is kind of dying out quite slowly. Um, and, yeah, just... He's, he was just a bit of a nutter, but he was just a, a really, really lovely, really, really knowledgeable, warm-hearted, funny, just, you know, doesn't give a sh shit what people think kind of guy and um yeah that would be that would be sorely missed every you know he he interacted with like everybody that came into the shop like no matter your age or you know creed class whatever but he um he he kind of treated everybody the same um with the same amount of disrespect <laughs> um and that was really that was um yeah and that was that was really nice to be around So fine, there's nothing I won't do just to hear you say you always love me too. Hi, my name's PJ. Um, in the basement of Honest John's Portobello, the world famous. Um, just here to share some memories of a good friend, one of my mentors, um, Tony Al Capone Morris. 
my first memory of seeing Tony um, as a little boy playing in the road with my older sister, seeing him walking up the road with his with his suit, his um, Crombie in his arm, and he used to walk. Sometimes he used to walk with a cane as well, and his hat tilted to the side, just like the picture that a lot of people know him for. And I said to my sister, you know, who who's that sort of thing? And I was around. I think I was around six or seven at the time, and she said, that's um that's Al Capone. Yeah, when you get older, that's how you got to dress. So me and my friends, we always looked up to Capone. It's only it's funny because I only knew his name was Tony maybe when I was about 19 or 20, and I've known him since six or seven. So, you know, I mean, always known him as Al Capone. It was through him actually. I mean, I used to come to Honest John's anyway when I was around 16, 17, when I started to like earn a little bit of pocket change to buy more records. I used to come to Honest John's, so I knew Mark, I knew Alan, but it's through. Capone that I got to know them as close as I do now. I always felt with Tony around in our parties I could play whatever I wanted to even if it was a sort of a half half and half record he'll make it he'll make the people love it just by his big shouts of yeah tune and you know so having someone like him around it was it was it was it was important Tony's been a big influence big influence for me. And how would you describe him uh, as a DJ when he's playing records? His thing, he would, he would just play music. He would have no sort of limit as well, I'm not going to play this now. He would just play, he would just play whatever he felt. He would just play and the people would just respond to it. You know, so he, he, he was good. And I used to observe that. Are there uh, some memories that really stand out, like really cherished memories that you think back to about Tony? Wow, there's so many, there's so many. I took him up to this, um, this, this record warehouse I discovered back in the late 80s, um, up in Reading. I told him about it. And I said, look, I'm gonna take you to this place to buy some records, yeah? Now, anybody who knows Tony, he used to like to moan, yeah? He wouldn't stop moaning about anything. So I said, come. I said, when we get up there, I'll buy you lunch. He goes, oh, I'm not getting up ready. Well, I got ready for, I can find all I want in London. I go, shh, just come. From the time we left London, all the way to Reading, he didn't stop moaning, yeah? He just moaned and moaned and moaned. I said, don't worry, you won't be disappointed. As soon as we got there, bought him lunch, and he was still moaning. When we got into the warehouse, I showed him and I said, right, I introduced him to the guys and that. And from the other side of the warehouse, he said, oh, it's not too bad in here, is it? I just felt to leave, leave him up there because, you know, I said, that's what I was saying to you. So that's a memory. That's one memory that sticks out. Man, there's so many, but that's one vivid one. Because when we got back now, we came back with a couple of tunes and he was just like talking about it nonstop. Miss him a lot. You know, even walking now up and down the Portobello, it's just not the same. It's not the same, you can, feel, you can just feel that something's missing, you know what I mean? A lot of prominent people's left the area, um, passed away over the years, but not had this effect Tony's left. And Tony has left a legacy and hopefully he can keep it, keep his name out there and keep it going and, yeah. Were there certain records or tunes that you um, will like really remember Tony for? Yeah, um, Natalie Cole, this will be, always remind me of Tony. Active Force, Give Me Your Love, yeah. Um, Bunny Whaler, Black Heart Man, all, all these tunes I remember, that's just Tony, man. When I listen to him, I just feel, wow. And there's one other soul tune that even now when I hear it, I have to switch off because I get a bit emotional. It's a tune by Black Ice, Blind Over You. That's Tony's tune. That's Tony's tune. They played it in his, um, in his, in his memorial thing. Um, they played it in his wake for his funeral. And I just had to walk out the hall because I just, all their memories of Tony, you know, and he gave me a copy of that. Even up to the last time we spoke, he says, um, if I ever lose my, I can't find it, then I'm going to have to come to you for yours. My friends keep telling me about the things they see you do, baby. They say if I don't watch myself, you'll make a fool, I'll bet you. But it's too late. There ain't nothing I can do. I've worked at Honest John's since uh, 1998. My name's Michael Smith. Um, I've been in Portobello, or trading in Portobello, about over 30 years. And my wife and I, who's Malaysian, we started a little shop called Macan. It was like a little hole in the wall. And Tony was one of the first people who kind of befriended us. Characters like Tony, of which there, there aren't very many left in this world, um, but the few that are, they turn a place like 
W10 Leopard Grove, this area, turns it into like a village because you know you walk down the street with him everybody knows him everybody's saying hello you he just you wouldn't be able to walk down that's the street. why it took him so long to get down to here absolutely because he'd been got probably been to lisboa or somewhere for a coffee and that would be three hours then you get down here about lunch time you'd probably say some something in the shot uh, somebody would go oh this is a good album you go it's rubbish wouldn't it yoppy uh, <laughs> so and then he'd come down to the mccann's spend another couple of hours so you, yeah but coats coats yeah yeah o- overcoat in in um summer 30 degrees yeah mm. yeah and a suit underneath and a suit underneath maybe yeah. an open neck shirt it's possible i think even in malaysia mm. he um we took him to malaysia how did that happen <laughs> my wife just invited him you know he was there so and, and he then he met extended family who, who, who got on with him so they probably invited him as well. And so he we went and stayed in my brother-in-law's house. And we also, we also took him to the Lake District one year after Carnival, which was also quite funny because I remember picking him up. We used to get, kind of get a little um, buzz. And there'd be a few of us in there who, who were working there. And then uh, I, he was carrying like um, his dry cleaning which I thought was his dry cleaning. What do you want that for? And he got two suits and that, it wasn't ideal to go to the Lake District. Shiny suits and shiny shoes. He nearly fell in the in in, in one of the the lakes at one point. In these slippery shoes, <laughs> he still see it. He just went <laughs> My name is Michael Worker. Um, I work at Chakos, which is a Greek restaurant in Maida Vale. Uh, before we start our shifts, we come down to Portobello Road for a coffee. Uh, me, Zen, Tony, and the rest of the team. Um, I knew Tony because he worked with me for years. I worked there ever since I was a kid, so I've sort of grown up around him. Um, and he's taught me a lot about rare groove music and vinyl. And if he wasn't around, I doubt I'd ever even been introduced to certain, you know, types of musicians and songs. And vinyl was a whole concept of listening to music because, obviously, I'm a I'm an iPod generation kind of guy. So, and what were the the sort of key things that he he taught you about sort of listening to music and and searching for music? Well, he had quite a unique taste. Obviously, um, I listen to sort of every kind of genre of music. I'm not one to sort of be quite specific, but he loved sort of like you know really good rare groove style of music, and because of that. I know a lot of songs that no one else my age does, which is basically the main sort of uh, benefit that I have of, of, of sort of knowing him, which is you know, a great thing. And I'm, I'm always gonna sort of love him for that because you know, I've got quite a unique taste in music now, which is, which is a great thing to have. And how, how would you describe uh, Tony's personality? Oh, it's such a fun loving guy. Like he just, you know, like we'd go for a coffee down Portobello Road and we would have to leave and leave him there because the people would be queuing up to sort of talk to him. Like, he used to just talk to everyone and everyone used to just get on with him. And, you know, you can't sort of walk down down the street beside him because you'd get, you'd get stopped every two metres. <laughs> I'm Zen. I've got a Greek restaurant on Maryland's Road. Uh, I've known Tony for most of my life. I used to live on Port Miller Road, so I'm learning from there. He worked at your restaurant for yeah, a while. Yeah, he, he, used to, he used to help out there, you know, occasionally. And sometimes he used to DJ at the restaurant. When he's with his records, he was like a very serious kind of, very serious about them. And as for, you know, what Michael said about teaching, you know, I'm sort of the same age as him. I was constantly learning from him. And I think uh, most people did. Because, you know, he had a great, it was like a, a Shazam. We didn't need Shazam in the in the shop, you know. We'd say, Tony, what's that record? What's that record? You know, you'd, we'd hear like, uh, the boys would play a Drake song. And there'd be a sort of like a sample in there, and then you say, "What's that tune?" You know, let me think, let me think, let me think. And you know, he's, he'll, he'll, he'll definitely have the record somewhere, probably about three times. Hi, I'm, I'm Cynthia Dyes. I live around the corner. 
And around the time that I met Tony was in 2001 when I was the uh, CEO of Age UK Kensington and Chelsea. And uh, so he came and started volunteering with us. And, you know, 15 years later, he was still with Age UK volunteering every single week. I didn't realize how famous he was until <laughs> until later, because for me, he was you know just one of these really, really reliable volunteers. We were really lucky to have Tony so reliably every single week. Cynthia was one of the people who spoke at Tony's funeral earlier this summer. I mean, we went into that church and there were just hundreds of people from so many different walks of life. And that's what I realized about Tony. He was so many different things to different people. And I think that's what made him such a such a wonderful human being. You know, he was he was reliable. Tony Morris with the shoppers with the disabled older people. He was a DJ. I know he was he was friends with everybody around the around the neighborhood. And I thought, you know, what a full life he had, and uh, how much you know we're all going to miss him in our own different ways. Here's Alan from Honest Johns with a few final words. Tony was a music man, unbelievably. He had a huge record collection, a legendary. It was always as he would always let you know. He had three copies of every good record that ever existed. He knew his music, unlike like nobody. I mean, because he grew up inside a community where you took music seriously. It was part, it was the way you celebrated the weekend. It's what, you know, what you did on Friday night was go to a dance for 14 hours. And it's a bit like sort of ragas in India. There's evening ragas and there's morning ragas and there's afternoon ragas. And there's a tune for every minute of the day. There's a tune for every emotion in your life. And there's a tune for every memory you have. And Tony was right inside that community. And grew up with it and was kind of like um, a tastemaker is such a horrible word but when you work in a record shop you learn from everybody that comes to the door and that's one of the great things you you sort of suck up knowledge from your your customers as much as you know traditionally people might think our job is to turn people onto music actually our job is to be turned on to music and then we in turn turn people onto music and if anybody could turn you on to a tune then Tony could. So We'd like to extend a special thanks to everyone who came down to speak with us at Honest John's over the past few weeks. There's recently been a wave of interest in tapes in dance music, but why the sudden attention on what most people see as an obsolete format? LA seems to be a hotbed for cassette culture, which is why Matt McDermott headed out to get some answers from some of the people who invest their time and money into tapes. There are certain musical formats that tend to confuse a layperson upon sight. Many of us have had a relative or friend say, wow, they still make those? If they see a 12-inch vinyl laying around. And it goes without saying that a new dance music cassette would strike most normal people as utterly alien. Despite the niche interest in the format, there's been a significant uptick in tape sales over the past few years. The National Audio Company, a cassette factory located in Springfield, Missouri, has reported a one-third rise in sales since 2014. That the plan is located in North America is no coincidence. A quick poke around the internet will unearth a scene of cassette imprints putting out vital electronic music. A lot of them, such as 1080p, Constellation Tatsu, Leaving, 100% Silk, and Ascetic House are based on the West Coast, peddling their wares through esoterica touting shops like LA's Mount Analog. The bottom line is the cassette format is a cheap, easy way to get a physical release out without the fuss. Even as American experimental music has strayed towards the dance floor, label owners have retained their affection for the format, despite its impracticality for DJs, or really anything beyond home or car listening. We traveled around LA, whose many thrift stores and record shops are flooded with used and new cassettes, and attempted to get to the bottom of the low-key cassette craze. We first spoke with Los Angeles resident Britt Brown, who is a co-founder of the label Not Not Fun, as well as its well-established dance offshoot, 100% Silk. Britt put out his first release, a cassette, way back in 2004. Since then, he's been responsible for almost 500 releases, the majority of which have been on tape. I'm wondering when did you begin to gravitate towards cassettes or think that it was a good idea to release them for normal underground music consumption? The very first release we put out was a cassette and that was very much 
premeditated. Both Amanda and I had grown up with them to a certain extent and were fond of them and thought they had a lot of character and it was very connected to thrift stores and sort of salvage culture and using recycled materials. We had both seen in stranger types of music that cassettes had returned and you see them frequently at underground shows of the smell of punk bands or noise bands or anything like that. And we had always purchased them, but I didn't realize it was quite so viable until we started the label and it was our first choice and still probably the main emphasis overall. And so why did the cassette establish, you know, sort of primacy in terms of your label and what you're doing? Certainly the, the cost of production are the lowest with cassettes than with nearly anything else. At the beginning, they went in tandem with CDRs, but the cassette is still more of a, there's something more physical and I feel like you put it on the stereo in a different way than a CD. Some of it was just personal preference as well. I've always liked that you can't skip tracks. There's just something a little more respectful to the work as a whole that you have to engage with it and you can't just steal out your one sample, your one track that you know, is worth it for you. And so putting out ambient and experimental cassettes sort of naturally led into putting out dance music, for lack of a better word, that had some of those characteristics as well. Do you think that the format makes sense for dance music? And if so, what's the ideal setting to listen to, say, an 8-track, 100% Silk release on cassette of dance music? Our background was always home listening. We didn't go to clubs and that was never how we bonded with our early discoveries of dance music and the vinyl of a lot of the things we discover was so unattainable and so outrageously expensive and not being DJs there's just no way you need to spend that to get it and so for us and especially for me home listening to dance music makes tons of sense the point is to create this document and particularly if you're working with a lesser known musician I think it's a great first step and an intimate object. And if it strikes a huge enough chord, someone else will waltz in and they'll reissue it and they can take on that, that task. It's just a format that I think has more relevance than people thought it did. Club music or dance music, inevitable evolution it had to go through was to become a form that didn't have to be functional. It doesn't need to work in the club. That's where it started, but Dance music can be so many iterations and can morph so much that it doesn't all have to be judged by the same standard. So Not Not Fun, you know, preceded sort of hypnagogic pop and like vaporwave and all these other genres, as well as labels who are putting out a lot of cassettes. And do you feel like they're coming from the same place? And are you excited about, you know, this revival and this like uptick in cassettes coming out? I certainly like it because it's probably the format I'm most prone to purchase myself and it's, I'm more of a cassette collector than I am a vinyl collector simply due to being broke most of the time. I really believe in the future, the imagined future listener and you must create some kind of thing that they can discover in the future. And certainly they can discover a YouTube link they've never seen before, but that's just not the same use of the word discovery as it is to come across an old tape or an old record and not really know when it's from and not know the scene and be fascinated by it. And so I think you are creating these documents that their meaning will change over time hugely. And I love the idea of, you know, in 30 years, seeing some not a fun tape in a weird used bin. And I, even I can't remember what it is. So the, the, the tapes on my wall are divided into sections. Uh, some by country, some by musician, others by label or general stylistic inclination. L.A. resident Zoli Adler runs Godi Tapes, a small, arty cassette imprint. He's also a scholar of underground music culture. In 2012, he received a grant to embed with various DIY music cultures the world over. Many of those revolve around releasing cassettes, and he walked us around his collection and talked with us about his experiences out in the San Fernando Valley. Um, the general tenor of the cassettes in this collection would be one of eccentricity and a YB normal attitude. Uh, nothing here kind of besides 
the tapes I inherited from my dad. Nothing here could really fall under any coherent genre, really. So there's really little stylistically that holds all of this together, but there's definitely kind of concentration around labels that over the years I've grown really close to. Night People, Not Not Fun, Dreamtime Tape Sounds, Nasty Levo, Stenziquo, plenty. I mean, the list can go on. <laughs> When I finished my undergraduate degree, I got this very peculiar traveling grant to go document underground music without any real parameters other than that. That and don't come back to America for a year. Um, so I made up my own plan as I went, started in Australia and tried to go around the world. <laughs> from Australia up through Southeast Asia into Northern Asia and across circling through Europe. There are massive swaths of the globe I didn't reach. Um, but the purpose of the trip was to sort of research by way of participation. Um, I didn't so much document or observe as try to integrate myself into each place I went. That usually involved recording with somebody, living with someone, playing a show with local bands helping bands with the design or, or printing some of their artwork. And I tried to kind of achieve some sort of more embodied understanding of how these practitioners, if you can call them that, operate. So Zoli, are cassettes the primary way that you collect music? And if so, why? I'd have to say that it's one of many ways and that it lends itself to a certain style of listening and also certain kinds of music. So within the network of cassette labels in the US at least, the sound tends towards something more lo-fi, casually made, kind of haphazardly produced. And that's the kind of music I like to listen to on tape. Does that also apply to the way that cassette labels are run? So there's a certain amount of resistance or stubbornness, I think, on the part of the true, truly homespun producers in that they kind of stop themselves kind of falling into the traps of kind of commercialization. Is that something you identify with as well in in your own practice and, and the music that you tend to seek out, like a sort of non-commercial ethos that comes through with the cassette label? Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, I have no strict barriers as to what does and does not enter my kind of uh, the remit of the label, but I'm definitely drawn towards recordings that seem to have suggestions of how they were made, the people who made them, um, the circumstances of its production. And so the little bits and pieces left over in the recording process onto cassette in the kind of home studio atmosphere, um, kind of circumstantial noises, environmental sounds, tape hiss, things like that, definitely add to my experience of listening. They operate as a sort of index of all the things that were going on at the time, and I find that a really compelling dimension of the music. Dance music is a process of layering sounds, and the cassette is a medium that can oddly grow or augment or expand to make room for every layer, and the cassette will kind of smoosh in one direction or another, redistribute the balance of the sound itself in order to accommodate everything. And who are some of these dance producers that you think are really engaging with the medium in an interesting way? Looking around this room now at the music I have available in front of me, I'd say Siobhan, a Detroit project, does an incredible job with precisely that. Cuticles, early tapes do that as well. The old throbbing gristle tapes got precisely the same effect. Maybe you can describe your year of travel. And during that time, did you notice that there is an uptick in this sort of underground activity in terms of cassette labels? Yes, absolutely. There are more tape labels than there were 10 years ago, but they follow very different trajectories depending on the part of the world you're in and the scene you're involved in. I wouldn't say that, you know, the hardcore cassette community has exploded in the last 10 years. I also wouldn't say that the kind of Malaysian music scene has embraced them any more or less than they did 10 years ago. But yeah, taken on the whole, absolutely, it's grown. This is the hour from Resident Advisor. We're here in Silver Lake off of Sunset Boulevard at Vacation Vinyl. 
We're speaking with Gray Holger, an occasional employee of the shop, who also runs the Chondritic Sound label um, that also acts as a serious distributor of underground cassettes here in the U.S. Can you speak a little bit about like the financial aspect of putting out cassettes versus putting out vinyl at this point? Well, the vinyl market uh, <laughs> it seems to be a total mess now with just how much business there is and how much the majors and large indies are producing uh, compared to what the small record labels are doing. So now I'm told when I want to press a record, it's 10 to 26 weeks turnaround time on uh, on making a record. And if I wanted to, I could make a tape today. I could record it, duplicate it, and print covers and all that stuff in a day if I wanted to. So the turnaround time is a lot quicker. Uh, the cost of getting set up and doing all that stuff is a lot cheaper. Um, some people still produce tapes at home. I'm one of those people. I have tape duplicators at home that I use and, and maintain. Uh, some people send their stuff out to a place like National Audio Company and they uh, will duplicate it and print on the shell and print your cover art for you and shrink wrap it and send you back a box of tapes. I still spray paint my tapes, stick all the labels on my tapes myself. I like the handmade approach. So And obviously your label stemmed from an underground network of noise musicians, experimental musicians, but at this point, you wouldn't stray away from putting out dance music. What do, what do you think that's about? Are most of the people that you knew who started out making noise like way more open to house or techno at this point? I think the climate's changed certainly with what people listen to and uh, people that probably wouldn't have been listening to techno five or 10 years ago are openly embracing any kind of dance music nowadays um, it's just been getting more and more popular I grew up loving goth and industrial music so to start releasing things more along those lines was just realizing I can do whatever I feel like with my label you know for years I thought of it as a noise label um, like I said back in 2008 I put out first sort of dance oriented release it was a, a double cassette by Marshall Cantrell and uh while not like traditional dance music, it's drum machine synthesizers, vocals, and definitely was like a departure for the label. We sell <laughs> a lot more dance music here at the shop than we used to, and I see you know a lot of the other shops in the area doing the same. So walking around vacation, a fair amount of the stock is made up of cassettes that are you know meticulously and lovingly organized. And do you find customers gravitating towards the store to buy tapes and asking you about it? Yeah, we have a strong base of customers for cassettes, and we sell cassettes here every day. Uh, people come in because they know the shop carries cassettes, and we carry uh, stuff by people who frequent the shop or frequent Los Angeles and stuff we can get from all over the place. So there's a nice wide selection of cassettes here from things people know, like, you know, we carry the Ascetic House tapes here. We get Posh Isolation tapes here for some of the uh, more popular stuff. And people who started buying cassettes at vacation will bring their first cassettes releases here for us to sell. Uh, I've seen that happen numerous times and it's it's kind of cool when someone goes from being a consumer to being a creator just through their exposure to something. Cooper Saver looks after Far Away, a party, label, and mix series based in Los Angeles. Starting out with a loosely Balearic concept, Far Away has gone on to host acts like Floating Points and Young Marco at parties held in warehouses around downtown LA. It felt quite natural for him to start up a cassette label to go along with all that. Cooper's released DJ mixes as well as original full lengths on tape. Well, I guess I started the tape series in addition to the party because I think it shows where our artists are coming from musically and gives them a chance to show their versatility. The tapes seem to do a really good job at making people more aware of the artists I'm bringing in and makes people like a million times more connected to what we're doing. And that's mainly because these mixtapes always offer a more introspective and personal view into the minds and tastes of our guests. I've noticed a huge rise in the popularity with the cassette format, especially among young people, such as myself, I guess, uh, that didn't necessarily grow up with tapes. Owning something that you can see and touch and listen to that you can actually identify with is pretty priceless. It's kind of like buying records, so I'd say we're a gener generation of collectors. Thanks to Matt McDermott in LA. In case you missed it, we shot a documentary earlier this year called Real Scenes LA, which featured some of the same characters from the piece you just heard. You can look up the film at residentadvisor.net. 
Next up on the hour, we're a little way past the halfway point of 2016. So I cornered a bunch of RA staff from around the world to ask about their favorite releases of the year so far. Patrick Fallon, RA's reviews editor. You want to tell us about your favorite release of the year so far? Yeah, um, I would say that it's uh, Caitlin Aurelia Smith's ears. Um, she's someone who I met in LA uh, when I did the uh, Breaking Through feature. And um, yeah, I'd been captivated by her album um, from the very first time I heard it, and it sort of came out of nowhere. And uh, the more that I you know, dug into it, the more it opened up to me and the more it just seemed um, like a place to visit again and again and again. And every time I did, there was always something uh, new or something that I don't know that just started making more sense to me every time I listened to it. It was interesting. I noticed that um, between the London and Berlin offices, it was an album that people were reaching for constantly. Oh, really? It just seemed to have that repeat playability. Yeah, I think it comes down to a few different things. Um, one thing in particular is that it just doesn't really sound like anyone, at least not anyone right now. Um, there are elements that remind me of like, uh, Fever Ray, like the way she manipulates her voice, um, almost like in a weird down-pitched vocoder. Um, that's really nice. Um, but other than that, there's just nothing that really reminds me of anyone else. Um, and that distinction is, is uh, something that, you know, keeps me interested. Um, and then in addition to that, um, in, in, when I spoke to her in LA, she told me that she's really interested in um, virtual reality and um, essentially these sound worlds and uh, the, uh, the details that are uh, involved with that. And she wants to compose for those. And so it seems to me that that album is basically a universe to her. And she sort of uh, crafted it with the idea of writing songs, but also with the idea of creating a sense of a singular space. So almost like a, an audition for uh, future projects. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I know she has aspirations for uh, film music. I know she has aspirations for, like I said, video game music. Um, I mean, sh she's seemingly someone who could uh, write for anything. I think her like, her musical sense is open enough and her abilities are like strong and clear enough that she could go anywhere. So the fact that, you know, she's writing like albums just kind of puts all of those uh, sensibilities together. And there was a particular synthesizer that was uh, front and center on this record, right? Yeah, the Buchla. Um, she worked with uh, Suzanne Ciani um, while living in Bolinas, California. And uh, Suzanne Ciani was an early uh, proponent of that uh, instrument. I think she'd been interested in it before that, but working with Suzanne honed her skills and essentially um, just brought her to uh, a new understanding of the instrument. And that is heard on ears. Um, you know, there's these sequences that are seemingly endless that, you know, but constantly changing all the time. They're not loopy though. They're, they're very like musical and more orchestral than anything else. That coupled with her like knack for sound design, coupled with her like vocal songwriting, coupled with uh, her love for soundtrack music, um, like movie scores, just kind of creates this narrative journey in a place that yeah, you'll never hear anywhere else. Holly Dicker. Hello. Hi, you've joined us from uh, Rotterdam. I have indeed, yes. Over in London for a few weeks. Tell us about your favourite release of the year thus far. I thought I would go for something, um, not necessarily from a critical point of view, I've picked something which has stayed with me ever since I first heard it. It sort of finds me in the middle of the night when I'm trying to go to sleep 
It's just popping up in my head all the time. And that's um, Kano's Made in the Manor album. It's his fifth album. Um, I'm not personally a massive grime fan. I'm not saying that I know a lot about the history, but I feel like this album has sort of been made exactly for someone like me, someone who um, is enjoying its sort of secondary rise from afar. Um, so when you say you're not a massive fan, it's more that you don't have a encyclopedic exactly like, yeah, okay yeah so I'm, i don't have because yeah. i know you're a fan oh yeah okay. <laughs> yeah i don't i don't have sort of this real um insular intense um knowledge of the scene i'm sort of just yeah like a yeah a back backstage fan casual casual fan i'd say in, in essence it's a pop record with grime roots a very accessible record for someone who doesn't have the encyclopedic knowledge about grime in the scene a lot of it's been sort of produced by this um, Grammy award-winning guy called Fraser T. Smith who sort of worked with Craig David, Britney Spears, Ellie Goulding and the like. But then the other half has sort of been handed over to producers like Rusty who sort of handled the big bombastic opener with like squealing rock stabs and big drops, you know, typical Rusty style. The concluding song is handled, the production's handled by Quez and he's sort of attacked, approached that with his sort of typical um, you know, calypso seal drums and the syncopated you know beat it sounds very different to simple pop production of sort of some of the other tracks half of it's sort of been written for this you know big stadium gig situation the other half has totally been written for the the club and so i guess i'm loving this album mostly for that latter half you've got like absolute killer bangers um like three wheel ups which features um wiley and gigs as well if you hear that in a club, it's just going to absolutely tear the place apart. And um, I've been fortunate enough to witness said event. Um, I went to see um, I went to see Kane and perform uh, in Melkveg in Amsterdam. It was the end the end of his Made in the Manor tour, filmed by Noisy. Now, like a week before, I'd seen Wiley perform in Rotterdam to 25 people, and I was shocked. There's clearly not. Um, there's not a grime scene as per se in Rotterdam, yeah. hence sort of like, you know, I'm sort of tapping into it from afar. But then seeing Kano perform in Melkweg to, I have to admit, quite a lot of English people, nevertheless, it was just a real, you know, one of my favourite gigs. And there were more than 25. There were definitely more than 25 people there, yeah. I think that the main point of this album for me is um, the subject matter, it speaks to everyone, it's not going down the sort of an insular grime tangent which is very sort of about the scene and you really need to know what's going on he's sort of he's writing about his family he's writing about drinking in the pub with mates and it's something that you know anyone can sort of relate to and I think that's sort of the ultimate reason why this is such a, a great album because anyone can enjoy it I'm from where Reggie Craig got riches East London, who am I to mess tradition up? Chili eels, pine mash, two pints of that pride on tap, polo top, pair stands, flat cap and a Burberry Maxim, Asbo kids and a crackhead, super tenants on the park bench, brown packet. Yeah, that's the hood, yeah, that's the hood, I'm just a two-pack. In a town full of shooks, trying to be straight in this town full of crooks, knowing you've never seen a man buy a Bentley with a book, we take to water like a duck, headed to the green, but getting caught up in the rough. Story of my life, and I'm just... Max Pearl over in London from New York. Would you like to introduce your pick, please? What I'm going to be talking about today is uh, a new album. came out a couple weeks ago f from a Peruvian duo by the name of Dengue Dengue Dengue. It's called uh, Siete Raices, which in Spanish means seven roots. I've been following these guys for a while. Um, they were associated, uh, I think roughly in my mind, with the Zizek or ZZK uh, electro cumbia movement out of Buenos Aires, which sort of peaked, you know, and I don't think it has as much momentum as it used to, but there's still a lot of really talented producers out there, and I think these guys are kind of carrying the torch for it. And uh, they just put out an LP um, that samples a lot of traditional cumbia and chicha and folkloric music from Colombia and Peru, and uh, I think they've done it. Uh, they made it look effortless. I'm really interested in the way they do sampling. Basically, they're sampling loops from a lot of very old folkloric music, um, which has some really amazing like interlocking rhythms, like the way that they 
layer samples with their own percussion that they add and then um, the richness and depth is really in the the rhythm and they keep the mel melodic aspect really simple like you're not getting a complicated chord progressions or you know really flashy melodies um, and I, I really like that um, there are times where some of the sound design feels um, a, a little bit too Ableton. There's like that Ableton kind of plasticky sound. Sure. But um, so sometimes not all the I'm not, I'm not in love with all of the synth work, but I think rhythmically it's it's really really rich. It's it's interesting because like a lot of the stuff that I've heard from them has been um, based in cumbia pretty strictly, which is that like, but this like rhythmically almost touches like you know like an Addison groove um, like they're going 140 beats per minute and they're doing these big sub bass stuff I see um, so on a similar rhythm pattern yeah okay uh, doom, 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 doom. and they're pulling from Duke and footwork those triplet kick patterns yeah. um, and so it's cool to see them grow and and not strictly be within that cumbia or the mumbatone down tempo framework um, and I think it it shows you know uh, artistic development, you know. Um, is this potentially a club uh, record? Yeah, it's a big, it's a really big club record. I think um, I would play some of these tracks certainly, um, and it's cool because you know, it, you know, as they say, it's it. I think it's versatile in the sense that I there's some real textural depth and richness to it, but it's also, you know, three or four of these tracks are absolute club bangers, and so you know they managed to pull that off with an album where it, you know, it feels substantial and, and yet it's also quite powerful just on a, a clubbing level. Dermot, you've gone for a track rather than a full length like everyone else. Do you want to explain your pick? So the track I've gone with is something that I've heard in the past couple of months, actually. It is a cut from TJ Sodafet called Current 82. It's part of a split with SVN on Keys of Life Finland and is another product of the sort of loose, self-styled, outsider scene that comprises labels such as Acido, um, Sex Tags Mania, obviously, now Keys of Life. Um, there's sort of an amorphous blob of these producers such as Matteo, Sodafet, Fettberger, uh, Club No-No, SVN, uh, Dynamo Driesen, and all of these people just sort of release at a fairly prodigious rate and oftentimes on their own labels. Um, but in this instance, something about this track just perfectly encapsulates that sort of 5 a.m. feeling where your night is sort of spinning off in an odd direction, but you feel oddly at peace. And a big part of that is the sort of almost trancey pads that Sodafet integrates into the almost 12-minute track here. Um, it's a pretty simple track. It starts with a bit of noise, and then there's a sly reference to a Mad Teo track that Sodafet actually remixed that I believe was re released on New Earth Kitchen back in 2013. That cut was called We Don't or we doubt or something like that. But basically he takes the vocal snippet from that, which is sort of like an Easter egg to people who follow this rather um, minutely detailed scene closely. And then he introduces these chords, like they're almost imperceptible at the beginning, but they're just, just a beautiful four chord progression. And, you know, at the risk of upsetting some of the giggling super fans that we have on staff, like this is what I want to hear from giggling and that I don't hear personally. And what's the key difference? I think that Crown Prince 
specifically gets there sometimes, but there's a certain unstudied rawness to this track that I, I think has sort of been smoothed out of their aesthetic at this point. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful cut. It's kind of stunning. I've only heard one person play it out live thus far. I heard Call Super play it, and he kind of played it after the noise break at the beginning, but it worked really well. It maybe wasn't quite late enough to play it, but it was, it was nice to hear it out. Thank you for listening to the third edition of The Hour. We'll be back next month with another blend of documentaries, discussion and interviews. You can find RA's podcasts, The Hour and The Exchange on residentadvisor.net and on SoundCloud at ra-exchange.